Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, the train wreck that was the New England Patriots' visit to the Trump White House. Talking that through with Melissa Jacobs from the Football Girl website. Melissa Jacobs, formerly an editor at Sports Illustrated. Also, I've got some choice words about Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and his nauseating efforts to piggyback on the success of the Milwaukee Bucks. I also got a Just Stand Up and a Just Sit Down award that you are not going to want to miss. That includes Take That for Data. And if you don't know what that is, you certainly will by the end of this show. Got some serious Kaepernick watch for you and much, much more. But first, Melissa Jacobs. So, Melissa Jacobs, how are you? I am good. How are you? Oh, great to talk to you. Great to hear your voice. Great to have you back on the Edge of Sports podcast. The, so many issues I want to touch on with you, but the first and foremost issue is I want to talk to you about what I'm calling anatomy of a train wreck. And <laughs> that is the entire day on April 19th of the New England Patriots visit to the White House. And I was hoping I could walk it through with you chronologically and okay. we could comment on each part of it. Okay. So, first and foremost, before we get... Uh, to the ridiculous. Let's start with the tragic in that the day started by learning about a former Patriots star tight end Aaron Hernandez um, allegedly hanging himself in his cell. And I found the media reaction to this to be largely, first of all, people expressing shock Mm -hmm. and then kind of a shrug, like hearing people actually say, you know, there's nothing really to learn from this. He was a murderer. Now he's dead. And there's something about that that bothers me. And I would just love to hear from you. What was your reaction to hearing about Aaron Hernandez's uh, alleged suicide and what you could possibly say about Aaron Hernandez, the person, anything that could shed light on his life and uh, eventually his death? Yeah, well, it was a pretty stunning way to wake up. Obviously, it was pretty early when this news was reported. I definitely, you know, my mind went immediately to the why, not, you know, I'm just going to shrug him aside as a terrible person and murderer. And I, I kind of struggled. A lot of people talked about this sort of feeling empathy for him, certainly for his daughter. I mean, yeah. that was, you know, she was front and center, his four-year-old daughter and and his fiance, and struggling with the, you know, feeling feeling empathy for a person who has been convicted of murder. That's a very difficult place to be mentally, mm-hmm. but I couldn't deny that. So I, you know, I went through that phase and then started to think about the why, um, the, you know, CT obviously popped up and I, I know his, his brain is going to be examined, but then I also, I mean, you I know, just, I'm going to periodically interrupt you, Melissa, um, just okay. so you know, <laughs> yeah, no, just cause I mean, in this, um, it's absolutely because you always, uh, and I know this because I've interviewed before. You always say a stream of interesting things, and then we move on to the next thing. And I'm like, wait, let's let's take a pause. Good, good. 
the CTE issue. Yeah. Now, I just wanted to ask you, like, did that pop into your head, like, independently of some of the reports that came out of players texting each other saying, I wonder if CTE had something to do with his suicide? Because I'll be honest with you, it didn't occur to me until I saw some tweets uh, and got some text messages that other people were talking about it. Yeah, it, it popped into my head. I don't remember who it was. Somebody somebody tweeted that out as a, as a hypothetical. And one of the things even before I, thought, I saw that tweet was, gosh, this is a really good opportunity to shed a light on mental illness. Because, mm. you know, I, I don't know Aaron Hernandez's brain chemistry. Um, you read a lot about him being a chameleon and being able to, you know, wine and dine with Bob Kraft's highfalutin friends. In, you know, one night and then the next morning hanging out with his, his gang buddies. So, I mean, there's probably something there to, to be examined. Um, so I was kind of, I was kind of interested in, in the opportunity for that. And then, you know, the CTE hypothetical comes out and, and part of me was, was curious if that was a factor. And then part of me was concerned that we were going to use that as a crutch and not mm -hmm. examine the mental illness. And that gets to my other question for you as well. Uh, when you heard it happened the day of the White House visit, <laughs> I mean, what was I mean, like, wow. I mean, was any of you thinking a couple of different things? Uh, the first is, were you thinking this is a coincidence or this was intent? Were you or was any of you trying to divine that? Because I know that I had read that it hurt Aaron Hernandez a great mm -hmm. deal the way the Patriots mm -hmm. decided on, on the point of accusation, not conviction. That bam, he's no longer part of this team. He is done. And they were praised for that throughout the media. And yet one wondered about the coincidence aspect of this. And I guess we'll just start there. Like, Did, did that cross your mind at all that this just seemed way too tidy uh, to happen on this day of all days? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely crossed my mind. Um, and also the Patriots have obviously – found a lot of success post Aaron Hernandez too, which I'm sure um, hasn't helped him. But I struggled with trying to to rationalize why he did it. Um, you know, I've, I talked to so many people that day, um, in, you know, including my mom, you know, just it didn't make right. sense. And a lot of people wanted to to mimic his agent and say, well, he obviously didn't do it. it doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have done this. Just for our listeners, because he had just been found innocent on a, a double murder accusation in court so it would it would and he was on appealing the original murder conviction um of odin lloyd so it did mm -hmm. seem like uh, an odd timing it, it, it did seem like odd timing but i mean i don't know what a person who can murder somebody else how their brain works again it goes back to to the mental illness issue right. i mean maybe he you know he he got off on those other two cases and realized the he, he he had no shot in the Odin case because there was so much overwhelming evidence. So maybe it was sort of like a finality of what his fate was, or maybe he he saw the possibility that he could win that also. And then what would his life be post post jail? I mean, right. There, there's so many possibilities. I mean, I, I know Dan Wetzel at Yahoo had a, had a brilliant column who's, who's been covering the trial and just talked about how lonely he was, how his lawyers who were racking up, you know, billable hours were like now his bros and his actual bros hadn't shown up in, in months and just, you know, a very, very lonely 
existence. So it you know, could be it could be a lot of things. And then there's the other issue about this as well, which is the issue of prison life in the United mm-hmm. States. And pr- mm-hmm. the United States is the largest prison population in the world, not per capita, but in pure numbers. And the two questions that arise out of this is one, the, the psychological violence of being in prison. And then the second thing is this is supposed to be – this is a private prison. It was supposed to be one of those high-tech jails yeah. that are particularly designed to prevent this kind of suicide. That's the thing that really just struck people. Like how does the most famous prisoner not have somebody monitoring that particular camera at that particular moment? Oh, I completely agree. And I know they said that if, if they believed he were suicidal, they would have moved him um, instantly. It's pretty, pretty baffling. And obviously, it took a lot of, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it was a snap decision on Hernandez's part. I mean, now, now we know there were, there were letters. Yeah. Um, there was um, 316 tattooed on his forehead. Um, so it, it was very premeditated. And I, I don't know how this wasn't prevented in that kind of prison, as you mentioned. And uh, just a little factoid about it as well that uh, really blew my mind is that there's going to be an independent uh, investigation by the state of Massachusetts because it's law that anytime there's a death inside a private prison, the state gets to go in and actually investigate. And as part of reading about that, I learned that Massachusetts is pretty exceptional in having that law. And in most states, it's like if you're in a private prison and you die, the, the results are whatever the private prison wants to tell your family or the public. Isn't that stunning? Yeah, I didn't know that either. But the, the results of that investigation are obviously going to be incredibly intriguing. And speaking of private prisons, they've gotten a major <laughs> boost in the arm over the last several months in terms of their stock prices due to their support by Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions and uh, <laughs> Donald Trump. So let's take it there. White House visit. We're reeling over the Aaron Hernandez news. And then we hear that Tom Brady... Uh, friend of the most, by far the most famous friend of Trump that exists in this constellation of celebrities, says that he is not going to the White House, just drops that the day of. Now, <laughs> let's just, I just, can you walk us through your thoughts when you heard about that? And because there, there's a lot actually to unpack here. Yeah, there were so many layers of things to consider on this this fateful day. <laughs> what um, a day! My I God. mean, seriously, and we're we're, uh, we're like halfway done too. <laughs> I, I know. I, for, my first thought was, "Holy shit, what, mm-hmm. what's happening?" Um, I, I did think about his mom. Um, mm-hmm. He had just—I I think I had tweeted it out. He had just posted this really beautiful picture of his mom. Um, his still sick mom with, with his daughter. Um, so she was clearly, you know, front and center on his social media. Then uh, I thought, well, maybe Giselle got to him finally. And then, then the third thing I thought, which I really would hope at this point would seep in is like, you, you can't have photo ops with this president, especially if you're Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. Like you just need to avoid that at all costs. The other factors we, we all know that his wife, Giselle Budgen, the the billionaire supermodel person, who's also very pro-environment and very pro-immigrant rights. Those are just Mm -hmm. two, just happen to be two of her issues. And she's also very anti-Trump. The very day of the Patriots visit, she just happens, just by coincidence, to put out 
and then casually a few hours later, delete, which of course always deletes tweets forever, um, a, a statement in favor of the April 29th climate march in D.C., which is an explicitly anti-Trump march. I thought that was pretty stunning by Giselle, who no one would ever accuse of not being media savvy. Exactly. It was, I mean... It's it's almost as if they were having a very heated discussion about it. And she said, I'm going to show you my position to like 10 billion people or however many follow her. It was very, it was just very strange. I mean, it's, it's you know, a credit to her that she's such a strong, independent woman with clearly her own voice. Um, it's just, it's that marriage, I don't know that marriage, you know, how much influence she has. Um, she's clearly the more, you know, politically active of the two, I would say. And amazingly, the more successful, which is a crazy thing when you talk about Tom frickin' Brady. I mean, Tom Brady is like dirt poor compared to her. <laughs> like a garbage can well, that also is why it always bothers me when people are like, ooh, look at Tom Brady signing for under market value. It's like, hello, <laughs> his wife owns half of Brazil. Exactly, exactly. So it's, you know, it'd be nice... Be nice if someday Tom Brady could just clear up what his relationship is with this man. Yeah, I mean, I, he's clearly you know we we talked about this last time I was on on your pod. I mean, he is a brand, and and the closer he gets to retirement, the more he's you know less player and more brand. Yep. Um, as crazy as that is to think. So if you're going to tie yourself to this this person that like only 40% barely like even approve of. And most people just have a visceral reaction. Yeah. The people who don't approve of him, it's like hardcore. Yeah. F minus your first hundred days. Yeah. Like we're, we're March, you know, these are people marching every weekend for mm -hmm. some, you know, these are not like, I guess I'll just check the box because somebody called me and I need to go back to watch, you know, Tucker Carlson or whatever. Um, so uh, to, to continue his, po you know, his own popularity, like he, I, I just feel like for branding purposes, it's, somebody needs to advise him because this is this is an actual situation that he needs to deal with at some point. Right. And and then let's get to the other part of it, which is I know a lot of folks and I got a kind of a backlash on social media because I was speculating about what was happening and a ton of people said to me it's like how even though I mentioned his mom and said like I pray mm -hmm. that she she'll be okay and I, I, I said that and um, I, I hope this isn't because she's uh, close to the end although this would just be you know a half day trip from where his mom is just mm -hmm. saying that mm -hmm. um, but you know you never want to speculate when it's family you never want to speculate too yeah. deeply but you would think and this is an, another aspect of the day I don't know if you heard Donald Trump's speech with the Patriots there, but it was stunning to me that he chose not to say the words Tom Brady in his speech. Wasn't that shocking? And it, and it led me to think there are only two ways to think about this. And, and I'll, I, would, I would love your analysis and judgment about this. Either Donald Trump, you know, he's the president of the United States, heard the truth behind closed doors. Yeah, Tom thinks you're toxic and doesn't want to be next to you. Mm -hmm. And he was miffed. Or... Donald Trump is so profoundly narcissistic that he was like, I'm more important than this guy's sick mom. And yeah. I'm not <laughs> sure which the answer is, but I would think it would be an opportunity to be like gracious if Tom was like, my mom is really ill. Exactly. We could see like shout out to my dear friend Tom Brady. He loves his mom, et cetera. 
Exactly. Like we hope, you know, his family's doing well. I mean, it's such an easy way to be classy. I don't know why it's so hard for this man to, to do that, you know, but if, yeah, if you go with the assumption that his mom is sick and I will go with that to, again, as you just said, to, to not give him a shout out, her a shout out. It's just, I mean, it's disgusting. Yeah. It's vile. And and then let's take it to the day itself, because a lot of controversy about who was there and who mm-hmm. wasn't there. Uh, the New York Times photos yeah. uh, showing the gap. And so there, there are the six players who were not there for explicitly political reasons. Alan mm-hmm. Branch's statement, offensive lineman, that how would I ever look my daughters in the eye? Yeah. If I shake that man's hand, I think he's speaking for so many <laughs> Americans when he says that. Mm-hmm. Um, so just before we get to who was there and who wasn't, real quick, you you know, you've studied Tom Brady. You know how he thinks. Is it at all possible that he also didn't show up because he gives a damn about this team and wants to make sure everybody's united going into next season? I, I majored in Tom Brady. Um, <laughs> I, I would – like to think so i mean again i'm still gonna go with the assumption that it was for the reasons that he said and wish his mother well of course but yeah i mean this is a very interesting locker room dynamic i mean i mean obviously the patriots would never be on hard knocks but it would be really interesting to get cameras in there and hear what their discussions are like um on this matter um I, you know i don't know i've ta- i've interviewed a lot of players in the past that all have universally said tom, tom brady doesn't hang out like he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't hang out he's not playing checkers with the guys like he's in and he's out and he is demanding and all of that and wants to build you know he obviously has relationships with guys you know edelman in particular um but he's not you know he's he's not holding court Right. As much as like Peyton Manning did, for example. So, so I don't, I don't know if I'm really thinking of of him in terms of unifying a team. I, I think maybe he's just a little bit more concerned about his own brand at this point. Yeah. And I think again, like going back to, to Giselle and her sending that tweet, I'm, I'm sorry, but she is, she is, she has a PhD in media dynamics and just the idea that she would send that, leave it up for three hours and then delete it. I mean, give me a break. I mean, you don't have to be Perry Mason to figure some of this out. And um, speaking of partners, you know, uh, Danny Amendola was also Mm -hmm. not there. Uh, His partner uh, is someone who's uh, not from the United States. Um, I forget her name, a beauty pageant person of some kind. I don't know. They're all pageant supermodels. Yes, but it seems like the ones who aren't from the United States are particularly (laughs) anti-Trump, maybe because they've heard rumors about how Trump acts at these pageants. Exactly. Maybe they've been (laughs) in them in the past and had their own experiences. Yeah. So let's talk about, like, in addition to the six, huge swaths of the team were not there. Yeah, and and even I don't know if you saw his Instagram, but backup quarterback Jacoby Brissett, who was there, he had this really beautiful Instagram post about it was a letter to Barack Obama. Mm. And it was the honor of being in the house that he has, you know, left diversified, not currently, but for the future. And how, you know, how he stood there and thought about President Obama while he was at the White House. So like, that's another one. In, in that category, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that, that I think particularly when your owner is Bob Kraft, yeah. I mean, who's such a friend of Trump, I mean, that, I think, 
classifies as an act of protest to put up an Instagram post like that. Oh, completely. And you're, you know, you're just finishing your rookie year too, and you're a quarterback. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. And, and just, just the dynamics of the team. I mean, I, I, we know Kraft's stance. I mean, he got political in his own speech, which was pretty uncomfortable um, yeah. on, on the lawn there. Um, Imagine but- being a Boston sports fan and, I don't know, maybe either apolitical or an Elizabeth Warren voter and having, like, the incredible experience of seeing your team come back from 28 to 3 used as a metaphor for Donald Trump's rise to power. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I was like the, the crooked media guys. I mean, they talk about it that all worked for Obama. They're they're all Patriots fans. And it's, you know, it's a very hard pill to swallow how you compartmentalize the two. Um, but yeah, it's just so fascinating to me that, I mean, Alan Branch was, was doing that interview, I believe, that, that you referenced. Um, I couldn't look my daughter in the eye like, during the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And... I believe Martellus Bennett also. Yep, um, he did a Facebook live event with did. Chelsea Handler talking about why he wasn't there, basically. Okay, so so <laughs> I mean, obviously he, he's not on the team anymore, um, and no one's ever going to um, muzzle Martellus. But the point that guys like Jacoby Brissett and Alan Branch and the you know the other ones that have protested for the reasons they have that they at, at least have the freedom or feel like they have the freedom to do that. Um, and still be part of this organization at least gives me some, you know, small ounce of hope for society, I guess. Mm. You mean that we don't live in a corporate dictatorship? That we don't. <laughs> the Patriots are not the, cor- the corporate dictatorship that we thought they were a couple years ago. Right. Well, that, that that is good. And so anything else about that day strike you? The one other thing that I wanted to touch with you about this day, and it really was a, a train wreck was the way in which the Patriots PR team assumedly, assumedly on orders from Kraft, went full ham on trying to go after the New York Times for showing the compare and contrast photos. And then Trump picked it up as if this, like it was the inauguration 2.0, obsessed with crowd sizes, obsessed with the New York Times. What was your take on, on that whole aspect of this? I mean, I, I'm surprised Trump's tweet took as long as it did, given his history. Um, it, it was it was one of the biggest lies known to mankind, and I I will never read the New York Times again. And I, I, <laughs> I mean, it was it was ridiculous. The editor owned up to it two seconds later once they corrected it, but it did seem to be very uh, predatory on the Patriots' part. Um, like like it was like they had prepared for it or something. But it's also undoubtedly there were more people there when Obama was president yeah. and when Trump was there. Yeah, completely. I mean, sure, the pictures, I guess, were misleading. But there also, when Obama was there, there weren't six players protesting Obama, mostly for the man that he is. Yeah. That's the distinction. That That is that is the distinction. And, and as I, I said at, at the day of, that that's also historic. I mean, people have been visiting, athletes have been visiting the White House since uh, the Johnson administration, the the Andrew Johnson administration, and you've never had six players just say, I reject this president, I'm not going to go. 
Exactly. I mean, even when Matt Burke protested, who's the the only example I can think of with Obama, it was because he's pro-choice. It was a political issue. It wasn't because anything having to do with Obama as a human being. Right. Or this is about misogyny and racism and lying. I mean, it's and just not even being comfortable being there. I think Garrett Blunt's the one that said that. So mm-hmm. it's just it's it's a very toxic situation, and it will be interesting to see how other championship teams um, handle it moving forward. And and I wish I knew which player this was on the Patriots, but there was one player behind Trump as Trump and Kraft and Belichick are smiling who literally looked like he was staring a (laughs) hole through the Washington Monument. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that go viral. And even even Julian Edelman, um, who, you know, is obviously Brady's boy. seems like a decent guy. But even when when the crowd would clap, he did two claps and he would stop. Mm. Go it, back to a straight face. A lot there. There was a lot going on there. Exactly. Um, and I wonder about, you know, Julian Edelman is an MOT, you know, as I can say, member of the tribe. And, you know, one has to wonder. <laughs> Trump, not a big fan of the Jews. I think that's been pretty clear. So um, I, I was wondering about that, too. Yeah, maybe maybe Edelman and Steve Bannon had, had lunch together that day. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we'll be right back with Melissa Jacobs. But first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. And now it's time for a quick word for the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Please listen up, everybody. you got to look at the most recent issue. There is an amazing article by Bill McKibben, the foremost environmentalist in the United States, arguably, talking about next weekend's D.C. climate march on April 29th. You absolutely cannot miss it. And now let's get back to our show. First and foremost, before I ask you any football questions, just please talk a little bit about your plans and yourself. You move from Sports sure. Illustrated. You're doing the Football Girls site. What's the plan for you, Melissa Jacobs? I wish I could just paste up my business plan right now. But, yeah, it, it's something that I wanted to get back to um, for a while. I I just saw a lot of opportunity. Um, the, so the Football Girl for – people who don't know, which I'm assuming is most of your audience, is a site that basically it's cover the NFL in in every which way, fantasy and player interviews and and quirky columns and, you know, just, just pride ourselves on, on high quality content that isn't going to mimic every major website. And the goal is really to uh, normalize it for female mm. fans, normalize the NFL experience. So there's not pink, there's not recipes, there's not that stuff. Um, and the NFL has always, always struggled to market to women in case you didn't notice. Mm. Um, I've, I've heard a thing or two about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do that from, from a content standpoint, but also not exclude men because why would you exclude like 51% of the viewing? population but so but just to understand here you you were in an editorial role at sports illustrated is this going to be like one-stop shop melissa jacobs or are you going to be an editor for other writers is it exclusively female writers what what's the plan i'm the founder and managing editor so i um control the the um editorial vision um partnerships, distribution deals. I mean, we, the site had existed before and as much as I wanted to think of it as a business, I mean, quite frankly, it was pretty much a platform for me. Um, even though I had other contributors and it, for a lot of them, it was a platform for them too, to, mm-hmm. to other things. 
but well, I am certainly going to be writing on a very regular basis um, and hope that I bring some credibility, you know, given my even more recent experience, um, I am viewing this a lot more like a business and you, you will, you will see things come out in certain deals that we have and videos and podcasts and all that stuff and um, possibly some apparel lines and you know, see if you, you know, it will look a lot more like a business in this, you know, 2.0 version. And the writers that you're bringing in, are we, are we, are you leaning towards developing female football writers or are you taking yeah, submissions I mean, from everybody? What, what's yeah, the I mean, plan? Gonna, I have a few that I'm going to bring in from the past. Um, but yeah, I'm on the lookout. I mean, I, I want to be, you know, I want to be a tastemaker when it comes to content, uh, when it comes to content written by women about the NFL. That's really what the goal is. So I, you know, I'm constantly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm scouring everywhere um, to, to find, you know, up and coming writers or some that are established. I mean, there's going to be a lot of first person type pieces. I mean, luckily I have, you know, some pretty good relationships. So, you know, I was able to do some of that in the past. We certainly did a lot of it at SI and I think mm-hmm. I'll be able to do it now, but I'm also using, you know, I'm, I, I, there's also going to be, you know, like, like I can, I, one thing I can say, which is um, one of the coaches for the Chicago bears, who is not a female um, that maybe in a few years, but he's going to do some kind of like educational thingy with me. Um, so I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to bring sort of this like high level, high quality content um, to female fans. So they feel, you know, to, to help normalize their experience. And not, not feel like they're being talked down to or or that they're being boxed into some category or, you know, I, I want them to just feel like they're getting mm-hmm. the same quality content um, just here without, you know, wives and girlfriends and lovely ladies of the day and stuff like that. And one last football girl question is if, say, ESPNW parked a Brinks truck by your house and said, <laughs> we want the football girl, is that – something you'd be interested in or, or is like a, a part of this very much like you having, you know, you were just with a big company in sports illustrated is part of this, having that independence for you. Yeah. I mean, the, in, the independence is important. I mean, as, as you may or may not know, I actually worked for ESPNW. Um, I was one of their original contributors and, and at the time they actually wanted to buy the site for, for a small amount. Um, but I wanted to keep that autonomy. So I, I just kind of straddled those two worlds. I would want to run the site. Um, I would, yeah, funding is definitely in the uh, foreseeable future. Um, but I also, um, I also own the URLs to the basketball girl, the baseball girl, the hockey girl. And so like the whole vision is that we have this, you know, this whole uh, empire and that, you know, sure, some massive company wants to fund it, but still let us run it because we have proof of concept. Awesome. Dang, I, I would be like sending letters to like, you know, Mallory Edens, you know, the daughter of the the Bucks owner who's a big uh, Hoops fan and being like, yo, you want to buy a basketball girl? Exactly. A million well, dollars. Now. Thank you. No. <laughs> Writing her name down. <laughs> we should talk about that, actually, because the, the basketball girl part of it, I mean, much more than the NFL is like. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of there there. I'll just say that. Gotcha. Um, so you're saying I should shut down the football version? No, no. I'm saying that you should do your football version, follow your bliss, be that Melissa Jacobs, and then be like, who wants to buy the basketball girl? What's up? Totally. That's my plan. <laughs> awesome. Are you a draft person? 
You know, I normally, I'm not a draft draft person, but I normally am, but I'll break a little news on your podcast, which like two people in the whole world will care about, but we're, we're actually moving to San Francisco and I have kids and like, I've been very, very preoccupied with basically all I can do is juggle that and relaunching the site. So while I, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not your draft expert, but I certainly follow and will be watching every second um next week so okay so then let let me ask you this like two questions about the draft because these are two things that like uh, that i i wonder about in in terms of the first is what people are calling the zeke elliott effect you know for years it was this idea that you don't take a running back in the first round and yet this year uh leonard fournette christian mccaffrey dalvin cook and it just seems like that's been driven by Ezekiel Elliott's uh, impact on the Cowboys, that people are saying, like, this is now a valued position again. Where, where do you stand on that? Is this just one of those uh, you know, trends that so often happen in NFL management circles? Or, or do you think that we, we are entering a different, legitimately different age in terms of how these players are valued? I think it's a trend. I mean, I just give, given the frequency that running backs are injured, I would never waste a first round pick on one. I mean, Zeke obviously turned out very well last year. He also had the best offensive line in football, but he, you know, if, if he's, if he tears his ACL in week two this year, was that pick worth it? If then he becomes this, this multi ACL injured player, um, not to pose that hypothetical, sorry, Cowboys fans, but yeah, I've, I've heard Leonard Fournette to the Panthers um, a lot, who definitely need a running back. And then you also hear the backlash. I, I would never, you know, maybe maybe late second round. Um, but, you know, Zeke, Zeke to me was a lot more talented than any of these guys coming out, um, just in terms of like sheer dominance. Um, so you you know, I, I understand it a little bit more, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm anti running back because I mean, you, you know, if you play fantasy, you play fantasy football. Um, I try not to. Okay. Please, please well, I'm, continue. I'm going to work. I'm going to be working on you on that. Okay. But yeah. Anyone who plays fantasy football on your, you understand what, you know, the rotation of running backs that come in throughout the course of the year. It's, it's insane. Another, uh, another draft question yeah. for you. If, if you, uh, if someone had stopped at the end of the college football season, they would have said uh, Deshaun Watson is a first-round pick, first half of the first round, possible franchise guy. This kid, Patrick Mahomes, is a Mm -hmm. second- or third-round project. And now you've seen the period since the end of the year to now where it's all been about measurables and you know measuring thigh circumference and wonderlick tests and phrenology and all sorts of bizarre things yeah hand size of course and now people are talking about Mahomes being a high first round pick and Deshaun dropping out of the first round altogether and I, I wanted to ask you like is there actually provable value in this period after this, that's even like more important than watching tape for three or four years. Do you believe in this period or is this just executive mumbo jumbo as they try to frankly justify their jobs? Yeah, I would, I would tend to, to stick with the latter. I mean, uh, there's too many teams that are kind of quarterback desperate right now. 
Um, I don't think any of these quarterbacks are look like immediate franchise turners, um, even as much as, as Goff and Wentz appeared to be last year, even though they were maybe a, you know, one-year project. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing um, Trubisky, go, people are talking about him number two to the 49ers. And I know John Gruden thought four of these guys were going to go in the first round. There is so much change. And I, I think it might be more about this class in particular and just the desperation of some organizations than any like provable thing that has happened with lifting a weight or a hand being a stretched mm-hmm. <laughs> a quarter of an inch further or whatever millimeter further. Um, it's, it's, it's a very strange draft. And I, I think other than miles Garrett at number one, I don't know what the hell's going to happen. And that gets to my last question. Cause it's so interesting. Cause I don't think anyone on heaven or earth would argue that Mitch Trubisky is the second best player. Yeah. And coming that, that out of college. Mitchell. That would be Mitchell. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. He now wants to be Mitchell. Exactly. Trubisky. I mean, this reminds me of when Joey Lawrence asked everyone to call him Joe. Yeah. I mean, it's like, my, that, my goodness. That, that's a real trend. Remember, Matt, it used to be Matt Stafford, and then it was Matthew Stafford, Mike Vick, Michael Vick. Yeah, well, that, well, that was the reverse one. That was Michael Vick asking for Mike Vick. Oh, oh, you're right. Yeah. Not a trend. Never mind. No, no, no. But but just the, the Mitchell Trubisky. Let, let's let's give give <laughs> Doctor Trubisky his due here. It just um, makes me think of the firm. But oh, <laughs> here's my here's my question though. Yeah. Is is like I I so no one would ever argue that Mitchell Trubisky is the second best player in in college football or the second best talented person in this draft. Or no one would argue that. Yet still, what what the argument I hear, and I just want to know if you agree with this argument, is that. It is such a win to get a franchise quarterback who can play maybe like championship level football in their second or third year, and you only have to pay him five, six hundred thousand dollars a year because it frees so much cap space instead of paying somebody twenty million dollars a year. That it's that risk is worth it. Even though what the, the old truism was, if you draft the wrong quarterback, it's going to set your franchise back three or four years. So if you're, say, the GM of the 49ers or the Cleveland Browns, where do you err on this? Do you err rolling the dice because you know if the person is good, it'll free up money all across the board? Or do you wait a year for the prospects next year who look pretty incredible? I think it depends on the franchise, but rule of thumb, I I would. Um, I mean, you would wait. You would not say Mitchell. You're you're my number two pick. No, no, no. I, I'm sorry. I would. I would wait. Oh, you would roll the dice. I would roll the dice on on Mitchell, um, because I mean, because it's, there's so much cap space freed up. I mean, I guess conceivably you could you could draft another quarterback. I mean, you know, that's not the position you want to be in, but. I mean, it's because of the, you know, the rework CBA, you, you definitely have more flexibility. And I mean, if you don't feel like your quarterback of the future is Colin Kaepernick or Jay Cutler and have to spend whatever kind of money they're, they're asking for, I mean, what, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if you're the Browns or you're the, you know, if you're the 49ers, are you going to roll out Blaine Gabbard again or um, Brian Hoyer? I mean, you have you have to do something like to 
you know, to get some development going. And especially, you know, again, in the 49ers case, like you have, you have Kyle Shanahan and who is the quarterback developer. So like he needs something to develop. To develop. Exactly. Yeah. And then my, my last draft question is you might've heard Dabo Swinney said that, say this, and he says lots of things, but he said that teams that pass on Deshaun Watson are the equivalent of the team, the two teams that passed on Michael Jordan uh, in the 84 draft. And I just wanted to ask you if you were a, a Deshaun Watson person. I mean, I, I again, I, I haven't like parsed through his film. I was mildly excited about him maybe three months ago. Um, I, I just, I'm one of those people that just gets sold on any quarterback um, based on like I'll watch the Gruden QB camp and then suddenly I'll, I'll be excited about, you know, Joshua Dobbs, who's like probably not even going to the third day because he because he donated to Gruden's charity. Because um, just because from a talent standpoint, I just from what I have seen, I just don't see any of these guys as like immediate impact players. I, I'm excited about Deshaun Watson if he's in the right system. Mm-hmm. It's so about the system. I mean, we we saw that with even, you know, Jacoby Brissett um playing well last year as a, you know, third string rookie. Um and that that might, you know, that probably wouldn't have happened in, in relief of, you know, say um, you know, Blake Bortles. So I, I think it's I, I'm just more focused on the system because we don't have this like generational you know, Andrew Luck type quarterback in this draft. And now my last question for you, and thank you. You've been so generous with your time. And this question uh, is one I'm asking you just straight up because you're the only person uh, in the room I'm in right now uh, who is a mom. And so that's your qualification (laughs) for this question. Uh I'm, but I'm a dad though. So I've at least been, um, you know, near the pregnancy and I'm kind of blown away by Serena Williams winning the Australian Open in her first oh. trimester but I'm I'm blown away by it like from that kind of gender distance and I just wanted to ask you as a mom what yeah. your thoughts are what it's like the first in the first trimester and what you think about her not even dropping a set in Australia I mean she's a goddess she's even as you say her name and pregnancy in the same sentence, I get chills. I mean, she's so phenomenal. Um, yeah, people, I, I was lucky. I don't even want to compare myself obviously, but I, I did not have difficult. I have two children. I, both of them were fine. And the, I didn't, you know, I didn't have morning sickness or anything. Um, they say being active is, is better to prevent that. I mean, I, you know, I, I was running five K's when I was 28 weeks pregnant. So, Dang. um, so, I mean, Serena winning the Australian open a few weeks pregnant. I mean, big deal, right? <laughs> no, but, wait, that, that's, that's seven months. It's seven months. You're running no, five K's. It was, was it seven? It was approaching 28 weeks. It was actually the Marine Corps in DC, the wow. five or not the, no, was it? No, it was a turkey trot. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, you see, you see women that are pregnant that run marathons. Mm-hmm. That, that always freaks me out. Um, there's a woman um, in my neighborhood who, who worked for NBC, who's like 36 weeks pregnant. She's doing like inverse things on balance balls at the gym. And we're just, I can't do not pregnant. And, you know, you just marvel like what's happening to the baby, but you know, cl- clearly Serena is 
getting the best medical care and advice of, you know, in the world, presumably I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just marvel at her, but I'm also not concerned with how she's going to take care of her body. Oh no, not, not in the least. Yeah. And, 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 and a pox on all the male sports journos who've been doing these reports about like, will pregnancy ruin her drive? To yeah. Compete? Oh yeah. So I'm not doing that at all. I'm just like, I'm kind of just amazed that first trimester not dropping a set in Australia. I'm just kind of like, what? Yeah. I'm all for gender equality in like every form, but there's no man that should be writing about how a pregnancy and motherhood is going to affect a woman. <laughs> I think that's a safe bet. Unless they're doing an interview and asking. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> hey, Melissa Jacobs, thank you so much for your time and good luck in San Francisco. Thank you. Yeah. And good luck with the football girl. We'll be tweeting it out like crazy over the next couple weeks. All right. Really appreciate it. Bye, Melissa. Bye. And now I've got some choice words about Wisconsin governor, dark money lick spittle, and presidential loser Scott Walker, and his efforts to piggyback on the success of the Milwaukee Bucks during these NBA playoffs. So there's a lot I really don't like about Scott Walker, not the least of which is that he has a bully's instinct to suck up to the powerful and beat down on the vulnerable. It's why he never fails to drop to his knees at the altar of the Koch brothers, billionaire Republican backers, and it's why he swoons at the mention of Donald Trump's name. He treats his own dignity like he treats a grandmother on Medicare as something eminently disposable. But Scott Walker's most annoying trait is his love of Wisconsin sports teams. He famously is a Green Bay Packers diehard even though the Packers' structure of fan ownership and their star quarterback Aaron Rodgers' condemnation of Islamophobia goes against Walker's core beliefs. He roots for the University of Wisconsin sports teams, even though he has made it his mission to cut hundreds of millions of dollars from the state's globally respected public university system. But Scott Walker's thirst to suck up to power and his love of Wisconsin sports came together in cringe-worthy fashion this week. The Milwaukee Bucks are in the playoffs. They're led by a very young, very tall, athletic core of players, and they could be primed for a first-round upset over the favored Toronto Raptors. The series right now, as I'm doing this podcast, is two games to one, Milwaukee in the lead. Scott Walker's response to the growing fear-the-deer excitement in the state has been to make Trump- Bucks jerseys with the number 45 on them with an accompanying hat that says, and I kid you not, make the Bucks great again. And then to tweet an image of this swamp swag with the message, since the Bucks are in the NBA playoffs, we made a special hat to give to the POTUS. MAGA! This is a problem. It's not just a problem because Scott Walker is an opportunistic Twitter troll masquerading as a governor. It's also not merely a problem because Scott Walker could not even do a public event in the city of Milwaukee without being deluged by protesters. It's a problem because the Milwaukee Bucks are built around players whose life stories stand for everything 
that Donald Trump and Scott Walker stand against. First and foremost, there is their star forward, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Born in Greece, he is the son of undocumented immigrants and has been subjected to death threats by the fascist right wing back in Greece precisely because he represents the kind of immigrant story that Trump and his international political network of white nationalist allies want to write out of the history books. There's Jabari Parker, tragically injured in this series, who has been a diehard supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement, saying, at the end of the day, I speak from my heart and I could care less trying to impress someone. Black Lives Matter does not mean black lives are superior. It just means that we matter too, end quote. Most importantly is their center, whose name a lot of people pronounce Thon Maker. It's actually Thon Makar, who was born in the South Sudan, one of the countries targeted by Trump's first Muslim ban. Before it was struck down by the courts, the banning of Makar and fellow South Sudanese player Luol Deng caused so much concern that the NBA and the NBA Players Association had to speak to the State Department about whether the players were at risk for detention or deportation. I'll also add that this is the team of Matthew Della Vadova, who's from Australia, a country that for unfathomable reasons Trump has decided to start a feud with. If this team really looked like Donald Trump and Scott Walker's version of America, it would basically be a backup center named Spencer Hawes playing the Raptors in a game of one-on-five. Scott Walker needs to discard his newly minted Bucks-themed Trump hats. And I'd say the same to Donald Trump, but you can guarantee that any gift from Scott Walker to Trump will be ignored and discarded right in the White House trash. If there is someone who holds Scott Walker in more contempt than the people of Milwaukee, it is Trump. Milwaukee dislikes him for his politics. Trump just instinctually holds the suck-ups in contempt, knowing that the more hostile he is toward them, the more they will come back for seconds. And now a quick word about another podcast sponsored by The Nation, Start Making Sense with John Wiener. It's one of my favorites. It's politics without the boring stuff. Please check it out. It's posted at The Nation magazine every Thursday. Just go to thenation.com. John Wiener has some brilliant guests week in, week out. Will McKibben, Amy Willens, you cannot miss it. Start Making Sense, politics without the boring part. Please make it part of your podcast rotation. And now it's time for the part of the show where we do what's called Colin Kaepernick Watch. That's where we look at the latest news with regards to current free agent quarterback, current blackballed quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, as he waits for a phone call from an NFL team. The news this week that I think is extremely significant with regards to Colin Kaepernick is that the Time 100 list came out. That's where Time Magazine lists the 100 most influential people in a host of different categories, politics, culture, etc., And one of the top 100 people listed in the sports category was none other than Colin Kaepernick. Now, if you know anything about these lists, usually the reason why they're there is written up by a peer or somebody in their industry, not by a typical journalist. And Colin Kaepernick's was written up by his former coach of the San Francisco 49ers, Jim Harbaugh. Now, what makes that significant is that Jim Harbaugh actually criticized Colin Kaepernick when he first put down his knee in his anthem protests. And I've heard some people cynically say, well, this is Jim Harbaugh uh, worried about recruiting uh, young black players and showing he actually stands with Kaepernick. Let me just say to that, you're not hearing Dabo Sweeney or Nick Saban praise Colin Kaepernick. And frankly, I think it says something good that Jim Harbaugh wants the kind of player 
who would admire someone like Colin Kaepernick. But I want to actually read what Jim Harbaugh wrote. It's short because I think there's also room to criticize what Jim Harbaugh said about why Colin Kaepernick truly is admirable. This is what he wrote. Colin Kaepernick was alone in his early protests last year when he boldly and courageously confronted perceived inequalities in our social justice system by refusing to stand for the national anthem. At times in our nation's history, we have been all too quick to judge and oppose our fellow Americans for exercising their First Amendment right to address things they believe unjust. Rather than besmirch their character, we must celebrate their act. For we cannot pioneer and invent if we are fearful of deviating from the norm, damaging our public perception, or most important, harming our own personal interests. I thank Colin for all he has contributed to the game of football as an outstanding player and trusted teammate. I also applaud Colin for the courage he has demonstrated in exercising his guaranteed right of free speech. His willingness to take a position at personal cost is now part of our American story. How lucky for us all and for our country to have among our citizens someone as remarkable as Colin Kaepernick. Okay, so there's a lot of good in that statement, but there are a couple of harmful omissions to this which I think any description of Colin Kaepernick at this moment really needs, both in terms of its past, its present, and its future. First and foremost, in terms of its past, this statement, Colin Kaepernick was alone in his early protests last year, that's how it starts. And you would think that from that would flow the fact that these protests spread, not only across the NFL, but across high schools, middle schools, colleges, cheerleaders, soccer players, hockey players, across the board, black kids, white kids, particularly at the high school level, all taking a knee to stand against police violence. And I think to exclude that really does make it seem like Colin Kaepernick is alone on an island in terms of these beliefs. And actually, I think that's very harmful. That's how people get isolated in these kinds of struggles. So to exclude the fact in a list such as this, in a list as prestigious as this, which will be a touchstone in terms of how people look back at the history of 2017, I think to exclude that is a problem. Second of all, I got to say, to write a description of Colin Kaepernick and to somehow evade the word racism, the word black, the word police violence, that's also, to me, a form of erasure because one of the things that made Colin Kaepernick so daring and so damned was the fact that he raised these issues. And frankly, if I was reading this and I came from another country or if I had been living in a tent for the last year or if I came from another planet, I would read this and not understand why Colin Kaepernick has been so criticized, why he can't find a job. And that gets to my second point. I don't know how you write this right now without including the fact that Colin Kaepernick can't find work, the blackballing. And so I think that's a problem with it as well. And I don't think I'm nitpicking. So while I absolutely applaud Jim Harbaugh for speaking about Colin Kaepernick, for volunteering as his former head coach at this moment to write this, I also think to not include explicitly why Colin Kaepernick protested and to not include all the people who stood with him throughout the United States. And lastly, to not include the fact that he's being politically blackballed at the moment. I actually think that's a problem. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award in the week in sports. First, the Just Stand Up Award. Who could it go to other than this man, David Fisdale, coach of the Memphis Grizzlies? 
you know, it's unfortunate that I got a guy like Mike Conley who in his whole career has got zero technical fouls and just cannot seem to get the proper respect from the officials um, that he deserves. Uh, it was a very poorly officiated basketball game. Um, Zach Randolph, the most rugged guy in the game, had zero free throws, but somehow Kawhi Leonard had 19 free throws. First half, we shot 19 points, shots, 19 shots in the paint, and we had six free throws. They shot 11 times in the paint, and they had 23 free throws. I'm not a numbers guy, but that doesn't seem to add up. Overall, 35 times we shot the ball in the paint. We had 15 free throws for the game. They shot 18 times in the paint and had 32 free throws. Kawhi shot more free throws than our whole team. Explain it to me. We don't get the respect that these guys deserve because Mike Conley doesn't go crazy. He has class and he just plays the game. But I'm not going to let them treat us that way. You know, I know Pop's got pedigree and I'm a young rookie, but they're not going to rook us. That's unacceptable. That was unprofessional. My guys dug in that game and earned the right to be in that game, and they did not even give us a chance. Take that for data. Boom. Take that for data. Already, take that for data is a t-shirt that is selling like hotcakes in Memphis. He was fined $30,000 for that rant. The players picked up the bill, and I don't know what the state of the series is going to be by the time you hear this, but they came out the next game, Memphis did, and they spanked the Spurs, 105-94. to And David Fisdale has gone from rookie coach to folk hero in Memphis. This is the Memphis' first playoff win in years and it's worth thinking about, like, why this has connected so much. And my, my own thoughts about what makes it so electric are not just because David Fisdale, as many of her marks, sounds just like Tone Loke. He used to scratch and bite me before he was much, much meaner. But now all the poodles run to my house for the funky Comadina. But what I think is so dope about it is that I think we're used to the spectacle of the coach coming out after getting their butt handed to them and trying to work the refs. We're used to that spectacle. You've already seen it several times in these playoffs. But I've never heard a coach step up to the mic and somehow combine the Pat Riley-esque working the refs with some L.A. Law, Victor Sofuentes, breaking it down to its very last compound in terms of the numbers. So not only... Does he work the refs with passion? He lays out a pretty damn unassailable case that his players got worked and he gives love to the two cornerstones of that franchise, Mike Conley and Zach Randolph. So all in one swoop, he stands with his players, he elevates his best players, and he also uh, goes at it with data. And I love the whole I'm not a numbers guy because that's a, a smack at all the analytics people around the NBA. And then he goes, take that for data. Because the analytics people, people might not realize the subtweeting aspect of what Fizdale said. They're in love with the Spurs. The analytics people live and die for the San Antonio Spurs and the way they have played and the way they do play. And so when you have, take that for data, you know, it's like he's saying it's not about your analytics. It's about the fact that the refs are going to call the fouls on us and not them. So it was just beautiful. I love it. I know it's not political, quote-unquote, but anytime someone says they're not going to rook us when your team is made up of veterans, I mean, that just 
That just takes some some amazing guts to do that. I loved it. I know Pop's got pedigree. It's just like the best line in the world. He pops his peas. I know Pop's got pedigree. And I just loved it, man. And my goodness, what David Fisdale did in those 30 seconds was take a team that I was profoundly indifferent towards. And now they got me curious. Chris Columbus, a man of his time, slaughtered Arawak natives the furthest kind, and they stayed of mind. And their take on the divine allowed them to be so inclined to send ships with guns, filled with men with swords, so filled with the love of the Lord that they do whatever's necessary for their position. Death is the decision when they on a mission. Death is the decision when they on a mission. What we talking about? And now it's time for the Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Goes to the National Football League. Roger Goodell, the schedule makers, who for the first time in league history is scheduling the Thanksgiving Day premiere game in Washington. Yes, you heard that right. The Red will be hosting the Thanksgiving Day game. Look, anytime. You have an issue of genocide and settler colonialism anywhere in the world. Insult will follow injury. It's hard to imagine anything more insulting than this. On Thanksgiving, a day that Native Americans throughout the country regard as a day that signals their genocide. It is a funeral day in many Native American communities. A day when they let the wolf into the hen house and were summarily gobbled up their culture, their people, their land. And so to have the NFL allow the Red Bleep host this game right now, it's disgusting. And let me tell you all something. Protests are already being planned. So if you are anywhere near the DMV, maybe you're going to have some turkey that night, go out to the game beforehand. Let the world know that this is not okay. Talking about imperialism. That's it for this week's episode of the Edge of Sports Podcast. You can always listen to back episodes at edgeofsportspodcast.com. If you like the show, please leave a comment at iTunes. Please tell a friend. Please give it a rating. All that stuff makes a huge difference. I've got some exciting news for everybody. Next week... Our guest will be U.S. Olympian Ibtihaj Muhammad, the first Muslim woman to ever be part of the U.S. Olympic team. So incredibly excited to have her as a guest. Ibtihaj Muhammad, Ibtihaj Muhammad, Ibtihaj Muhammad. I'm so excited about this. Thanks again for everybody for listening. Thank you to my co-producers, David Tigabu and Daniel Baker. Please check out our T-shirts, man. Please follow us at Edge of Sports Pod. We have a terrific Twitter feed manned by these two gentlemen right here. To everybody out there in Edge of Sports land, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.